Welcome to Altamar. We're going to navigate the high seas of global politics. My name is Peter Schechter, and with me is my co-host, Mooney Jensen. We're going to captain this boat for you for the next half hour. So join us, and if you like us, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. Subscribe, leave us a rating, tell us of your reviews. We'd love to hear your feedback. And Mooney, just a pause here into... Let's give us each other a high five. After just five episodes, we made it into the top 40 of the news and politics podcasts. Please go and leave us a review and help us get back to uh, the top 40 and help us get to number one. So, Peter, in the past few days, we've witnessed a very high-profile independence referendum take place in Catalonia, Spain. We saw many disturbing images of the government's strong police reaction. We've witnessed a growing sense of uncertainty in the country, a climate of division, and a deepening of old wounds. This also raises a lot of questions about the role of the Spanish state, the validity of the Catalan movement, and the worrisome polarization that follows, and also many, many questions about what is going to happen next, so what is the possible outcome? Yeah, and we should talk about the Catalans and the Spaniards, Mooney, in part because you and I have both some deep personal connections to Spain, but I think beyond Catalonia, we also have to talk about what are the causes of all these separatist movements, and do they have merit? And more importantly, is why is this seeming to be like this growing issue that's happening day in and day out? We keep hearing about another one. It's not just the one in Catalonia, but you have Kurdistan in Iraq, Biafra in Nigeria, you have southern Sudan, and it's rattling places, sure, Spain, but we had the Scottish vote just a few uh, years ago, uh, Belgium, the, the Flemish and the Walloons want to separate. Uh, we had this vote in Kurdistan recently, uh, in, the, in the past week or so. And even in California and southern Brazil, while they're not secessionist yet, um, but this is a global issue. It needs identifying some common factors. And um, we, ought to, we ought to do that with, with uh, Catalonia in mind. It's amazing if you look at the numbers. In 2011, there were 55 active movements. So we hear about the Catalan movement very visibly, but there are 54 others that are taking place around the world. And a little bit of stats, 30% of them turn violent, and very few of them are successful. So that kind of sets the tone for this conversation about how this is not an issue that's happening in isolation, and it should be absolutely looked into um, in context. I think secession is kind of a mini-revolution that takes place apparently all over the world. So later in this podcast, Peter, will be joined by one of the utmost experts on the issue, Professor Andrew Dowling. He's a historian at Cardiff University in Wales, and he's written extensively about the Catalan nationalism and separatist movements. So, Mooney, one thing that I think, you know, everybody was shocked at seeing the Spanish national police trying to impede the voting of people in Catalonia last Sunday. There were scenes of little old ladies being beaten up, women being dragged out of polling stations with their hair, Catalan citizens in the streets of Barcelona shouting down to these black helmeted Spanish police. And this, you know, I think that they're this had a lot of shock value because a lot of people see Barcelona as, you know, the center of a thriving new Europe. And, you know, though it's a toxic phrase ever since Charlottesville, the reality of Catalonia is that both sides, this is the fault very much of both sides, um, 
for allowing this to happen because there is a split in Spain not only between the Spaniards and the Catalans, but there's also a split in Catalan society between those who want to be independent and those who don't want. And just there's a sense of real, a sense of that anybody who was opposed to the Catalonian independence movement had no right to speak up. I think that I'm going to disagree um, slightly with you, Peter. I agree that the visuals were really dramatic and sad and very, very difficult to understand. These are highly uniformed, sometimes armed police attacking or repressing civilians and women and children and older people. However, I think that this was very carefully planned out by the Catalanes. And I believe that this was not an accident that they were looking for those visuals and looking to replicate those visuals around the world. The truth is the the vote was illegal. It's against the Constitution. What else could the government do? If the government stepped aside, it would be violating well, its a, own sense of state. Well, I've got a ton of ideas about what the government could have, could have done. There's one thing what the government should have done was probably engage with the region a lot you know, earlier than this. But I believe that the Spanish government did what needed to be done within the law to try to stop this vote. Okay, I agree that this was, you know, obviously unfortunate and possibly excessive, but I don't see an alternative. So show me. Well, there's, there, there would have been lots of alternatives to what the Spanish government did. But let's just let me let's just say that for years the position of a very rancid, cynical Spanish government has been it's illegal. Well, guys, we live in the Americas here, where every single country in the Americas, from the North Pole to the South Pole, was born in illegality. We're all, we're all the result of an anti-colonial movement that was born in illegality. Not to mention the fact that on the year that I was born, black people were not allowed in the front of the bus. So just saying that things are illegal doesn't mean they're legitimate. And I think that that I think there's a huge issue between the legitimacy of the Catalan national movement and just simply trying to repress it because it's Ill illegal. And if the vote was, you know, the vote only 42% turnout. If they would have allowed 42% turnout and would not have repressed it, what would have been the difference if Prime Minister Rajoy would have gone on t television at five and said they voted? Nobody recognizes that. And indeed, nobody would have recognized that vote. Not the Europeans, not the United Nations, not NATO. Nobody would have recognized that vote. And you wouldn't have had all of these uh, optics that I think are more than optics. Because when you say they're just op the optics are bad, Mooney, I think on the day that the Spanish police repressed that vote, one million new independence voters in Catalonia were born. And furthermore, and we should listen to this for a second, uh, because beyond the fire that Madrid, that Madrid has gotten under for having attacked that day, King Felipe, in a really unique moment, uh, because kings don't go on television except for on Christmas time in Spain. The last time they did this was um, after a terrorist attack in 2004, and the last time before that was in the coup d'etat that happened in February 1981. So it's no big deal that King Felipe went on television on, I think it was Tuesday night, with an extremely hardline speech. Before we listen to King Felipe, I do have to say that it, 
not being a Spaniard, it surprises me that the Spanish newspapers that usually don't agree on anything all agreed in the fact that the referendum was illegal. Not only that, but it was supported. The government of Spain was supported by the European Union. We'll talk about that later. Let's listen to King Felipe. We have all been witness to the events that have happened in Catalonia with the Catalan government's final goal of illegally proclaiming the independence of Catalonia. They have sought to shatter the unity of Spain and national sovereignty, which is the right of all Spaniards to declare democratically on their life together. It is the responsibility of the legitimate powers of the state to ensure constitutional order and the normal functioning of all our institutions, the validity of the state of law and self-government in Catalonia. That was King Felipe a few days after the referendum, really condemning the Catalan movement and using a legal argument to say, he didn't quite say the words, but he almost said the words that the Spanish government has the authority to quell this any way it can. I have to tell you, Mooney, that right then and there, if the, if the Spanish police created a million new independence voters on the day of the vote, King Felipe created another new million uh, Catalan independence voters uh, on the day of his speech. I wish that would make the outcome a little clearer, but it doesn't seem that way. Let's. We talked about one of the causes of this uh, outbreak being the lack of conversation of prior engagement between the government and uh, the Catalan region. What are we've also discussed um, the impact of economic anxiety and of the crisis of 2008 as one of the other catalysts. Let's talk a little bit about why why these secessionist movements in Spain and around the world take place. Well, I think one of the reasons is clearly there's a sense of economic anxiety that's, that's, that's happening in which these regions often are richer regions. So if you look at Catalonia, if you look at Flanders, if you look at northern Italy, um, a lot of these regions are richer regions and they have this gripe that they are subsidizing the national development of all of the poorer regions. So you hear in Milan that um, it's our taxes that don't go to help uh, people in Lombardy or in, Ven or, or, in Ven or in Venice, but rather go to help people in Sicily and in uh, Calabria, in southern Italy. You hear the same thing in Catalonia. You hear where our taxes are being paid to help people in Seville, uh, and help people in Asturias, but why aren't they? Why aren't they coming back to us? So there's a real sense of we pay for too much of the poverty and the, I, my words here ineptitude of uh, everybody else. I was talking to an American friend of mine about this issue this week, and she said it's like the New Yorker is not wanting to pay for the people of Mississippi. So there is some sort of uh, regionalism or even almost racism. 
in this argument. Yeah, but, but I think we should hold on. You said racism. I think that that's, a, that's an important, I mean, you know, nobody dares say it, but there is an implicit sense of racism here. I mean, as, you know, as the world gets smaller, you know, to, to, to as sort of the world's village becomes smaller, to use that phrase, it somehow seems that people are resorting to much more tribalism rather than having us feel that we're all brothers and sisters around the world. Instead, that all this brother and sisterdom is making everybody feel like we need to go smaller. And so there is a sense of like the Catalans feeling that they're better than the Spaniards, the Northern Italians feeling that they're better than the Sicilians, the Flemish feeling that they're better than the Walloons. Look, there's another big vote that happened earlier in the week, which was Kurdistan. Now, Kurdistan is not a European phenomenon, but they're here too. You have a really interesting ethnic uh, geographically contained ethnic group, but it's geographically contained in, in, in Iraq, but there are Kurds in Syria and there are lots of Kurds in Turkey. And so everybody's worried about a uh, independent Kurdistan leaving Iraq because eventually that independent Kurdistan will also claim that it wants the Kurds of Turkey and the Kurds of Syria to also be part of that. And there, there, there are some other smaller Kurdish population in other countries. And, and, and you know, I think you, know, you see Iran and Turkey, everybody had a dog in this fight. But what was interesting about the Kurdish vote was that everybody was against it. I think that that case, the case of Kurdistan, raises a very deep-seated cause, which is the cause of the erosion between the people and their government and a severe institutional failure that generates this feeling of neglect and isolation that in turn is the perfect breeding ground for the separatist and secessionist movements. And I believe that cannot be ignored when we think about what the reasons are behind this kind of worldwide trend of, of nationalism and, and feeling excluded has caused people to, to want to exclude themselves. But some some places have fixed this. Some places seem to have overcome the problem. So if you look at uh, the Scots took the role of the referendum, which very importantly the British government allowed. President, you know, Prime Minister Cameron made had to make a decision at some point. Would he allow this referendum? It was a very calculated decision. He was counting the people of Scotland that were in favor before the, the referendum took but place. But it was a if if Prime Minister Rajoy would have made a calculated decision, he should have had this vote two years ago because he would have definitely won, probably by a very serious majority. So anyway, but my point was that in many places this has been resolved. So in Scotland, at least for a decade, this has been resolved. And in Belgium, very interestingly, because uh, of agreements to change laws giving Flanders more autonomy and very importantly over tax revenue, um, they resolved it. But I think one of the hugely important things about Spain is Spain has resolved this too with the Basques. The Basque problem was much more important than the Catalan problem. The Basque problem not only had an independent component and a secessionist component, it had a terrorist component and a really serious terrorist component. I mean, the, the Spanish government has been fighting Basque terrorism for a long time, and yet they agreed to an autonomy that included a autonomous ability to collect taxes, which the Catalans don't have. And because of this, essentially, the Basque separatist movement has gone dormant. 
that let's go back to the stats in the beginning. Most movements are unsuccessful. They're not necessarily resolved. They just don't work. And sometimes in analyzing the Catalan movement, it seems like they really didn't think this through. So what was the end game or what is the end game for, for the Catalan is now? Well, I think on the end game, I think we should ask Professor Dowling. Professor Dowling's official title is that he heads the Hispanic Studies Department at Cardiff University in Wales, but his unofficial title is that he's one of the world's preeminent experts on Catalan history, nationalism, and separatist movement. He has an upcoming book, The Rise of Catalan Independence, Spain's Territorial Crisis. His research has centered on the emergence of pro-independence mobilization in Catalonia. He's written tons on the subject, and he's been a scholar in residence at the prestigious Faber Institute and will be leading a new Faber effort on nationalism in September 2018. Professor Dowling is on the editorial board of the Journal of Dictatorship and Democracies, very relevant subject for us today, and coordinates the postgraduate pathway at Cardiff University on nationalism in Europe. Professor Andrew Dowling, welcome to Altamar. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Professor Dowling, we've read about uh, your articles and research about secession and nationalism, and particularly your experience in the Catalan independence movement. If you had to uh, make a prediction, do you think this movement is going to succeed? In the, in the, in the next year, year and a half, no. Um, I don't think we're about to see the imminent of arrival of a Catalan independent state. And I think the principal reason why we won't see the arrival of a Catalan independent state, because it's still not fully clear whether a ma that is what a majority of Catalans really want. I think if that changes and we have a very, very clear majority of Catalans in favour of independence, um, the scenario could change. But given other factors like a state that refuses to countenance independence, I think in the, in, in the short term, the next 12, 18 months, a, a Catalan state is the least likely outcome. Professor, is it too late for a negotiation? Is it, uh, have we crossed already the... the, the the famous off-ramp, is there a way to get off this collision course? Um, yeah, I think there absolutely is. I mean, I think it's very important to, to put things in context and remember that until the violence on Sunday, which was Spanish police violence, I think it's universally recognized as, as the violence only by the Spanish police. This had been a very peaceful moment. There had been no incidents of violence until, until Sunday. Um, it's been a kind of low intensity political problem that has kind of grown and grown in intensity really in the past two years. But I think it's also important to note that it's not the Middle East. It's not Syria. It's not Palestine and Israel. It's not Northern Ireland. It's not it's not like another conflict in Spain, the Basque country. It's not a conflict where political violence has has been evident. So clearly um, political solutions can come about. Things haven't deteriorated to the point of no return. I think um, we can see the possibility of resolution to this conflict, but we need strong political commitment. And I think what we really need, um, in my view, is actually recognition on the part of the government in Madrid, firstly, about the terrible damage done to the sentiment of Catalans and also to the international image of Spain on Sunday. There's been some kind of modest apologies uh, made today, but they haven't really gone far enough. And also a real willingness to recognize that I think that Catalans who want to be independent aren't kind of crazy. They're not kind of indoctrinated. They've got 
real legitimate grievances and they believe that independence is the solution to their political problems. Let me, let me just follow up that question. I mean, both Mooney and I have uh, a lot of personal connections with Spain, so it's, okay, a, it's, sure. a, it's a subject we, we know and feel a lot about. But I, I just wanted to follow up on what you said because King Felipe gave a speech, which is something that he rarely does, um, that seemed to really authorize a acceleration of a possible repression should the con should the Catalans continue to move towards independence. And so I guess one of the questions I have is, even though there seems to be room for negotiation, even though um, this is not the Middle East, but what does happen if uh, Puigdemont announces independence and we start getting arrests and repressions and um, I mean it seems to me that we'll just create another million independence voters I, th I think that's uh, an absolutely correct summation I mean just to comment on the King's speech I mean it seemed to lack any kind of real understanding of what had happened in Catalonia on Sunday and that you know between eight and nine hundred people were injured by police action alone and that was Spanish police action so I, I think it was absolutely staggering. You know, he is the king of all Spaniards. So he should also, if he wants the Catalans to stay within Spain, I think there could have been, you know, noises made about we understand your concerns, etc. So I think Spain since 2008 has been experiencing an economic crisis and that economic crisis has fed into political crisis, including, of course, the abdication of the monarch. And that's why we currently have um, Prince Felipe. We've seen a kind of total breakage of the traditional Spanish political system going from a two party system to a four party system. I think the whole um, traditional political order in Spain is, is kind of like quite unstable, actually. A government that's quite fearful, that's quite action, uh, that's quite anxious. Uh, in a sense, it's that level of kind of repression is a government that's in a weak position, not in it wasn't a show of strength. In a sense, it was a show of weakness that they had to use those mechanisms. Professor, so far, the European Union has been supportive of the Spanish government. Do you envision the support to continue? I think for the foreseeable future, um, the European Union is 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 kind of trapped in a sense by it's firstly it's trapped by its own institutional mechanisms. For example, with the Treaty of Lisbon of um, 2009, one, one of the um, elements that was stated in that treaty, one of the, the clauses, states that the European Union or the, will not interfere within the internal dynamics within state, member states. So in a sense, that, that explains why we hear from the European Union a lot that what's going on in Catalonia is an internal issue for Spain and they haven't kind of you know, got their hands dirty, as it were, over, over what happened at the weekend. I think there are other things. There are also other um, dynamics going on as well that explain, in a sense, the distancing of the European Union. One of those is that because of Britain's departure from the European Union, which is kind of, you know, will happen in theory within a year, a year and a half, um, Spain has become a much more important member state within the European Union. And the last thing the European Union wants is further instability on its southern, on its southern flank. So pr promoting, if you want, protecting the political instability of Spain has, has risen in political importance. And I think that and a third element, I think, to the position of the European Union is also a fear that if, for example, that the independence of Catalonia takes place, it opens, it opens, um, in a sense, a kind of can of worms 
around the questioning of borders and frontiers. Europe, Western Europe in particular, has other movements that are pushing for success for secession. And Eastern Europe has, you know, internal minorities. For example, a very clear example is the big Hungarian minority in Romania. So anything that would sort of produce greater instability by changing the borders of Europe, I think, provokes real concern in Brussels. So I think it's a combination of all those factors. Professor, there's uh, um, Catalonia got the headlines, but it's certainly not only Europe that is uh, being buffeted by these separatist, nationalist, secessionist movements. We saw the vote earlier uh, this month um, of Kurdistan, um, mm -hmm. but there's also Biafra, southern Brazil. Tell us about what you see as some of the parallels to be drawn between the movements that are in Europe and the movements that are outside of Europe. Well, I think... Um all of these movements, in a sense, have got a long history behind them. And I think, for me, what's really changed is, is, is the political instability produced by the global economic crisis and the kind of, you know, the knock-on effects from 2007, 2008, particularly in the case of Europe, uh, has produced that kind of what, what's traditionally called an opportunity structure. Obviously, the implosion, in a sense, in, in the case of Kurdistan, the implosion of the Iraqi state or the seeming implosion of, of the Syrian state for a time seemed to provide these opportunities. So there, there are different, um, if you want, there are different elements. But I think we are clearly, you know, and it's not a particularly original observation to, to state it either, we're clearly in a time of, of uncertainty, of political instability, of questioning of, of, of traditional political systems. And I think secessionist movements have seen that this provides them with an opportunity to perhaps a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to obtain what perhaps they've not necessarily pushed for in the past and there's been more of a dream. And, they, and there's a sense that they feel that this could become real because of, of the, the, the wider, if you want, geopolitical environment. Professor Dowling, it's hard to ignore the role of Russia in prodding and encouraging these separatist movements in Europe with uh, all of their toolkit of uh, propaganda, fake news, and many other tactics. Uh, could you comment a little on this role and what kind of influence it's having in not only uh, multiplying but exacerbating secessionist movements? Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly seems that, um, that you know, Russia, since the Ukraine crisis, has has wanted to kind of um, exact a certain degree of revenge on the European Union. And I think um, a weakened European Union clearly benefits the geostrategic interests of Russia. Um, as I stated, you know, a few minutes ago earlier, a, a, a kind of an unstable Spain has, has real potential knock-on effects within Europe, not just around questions of secession, but also, for example, French and German banks have very important investments in Spain. So clearly, the European Union um, is playing, um, is juggling a lot of elements there. And a weakened European Union, you know, serves at the present time the purposes of Russia. So there's pl certainly been plenty of evidence out there of, of, you know, of, of Russian involvement in, in, in some of the, the news stories surrounding um, Catalonia in the past two or three weeks. I mean, I think, you know, and, and the, the rather, if you want, strange intervention by Julian Assange as well, who's, be, who's seemingly become the most fervent supporter of Catalan independence 
known in the past 20 or 30 years. His, his interventions have been quite profound and quite pronounced. So, yes, there's a, there's a definite sense of, um, I think, Russia's seeing this as, as, as useful for destabilising the European Union. But also, I think we also have to remember that Russia has a very hard line on its own internal um, secessionist movements. I mean, the idea that, for example, that the Russian government would allow a referendum on independence for, for example, Chechnya, um, tells us a lot that Russia's happily, if you want to cause trouble in someone else's backyard, but certainly wouldn't want the same principles applied within its own territory. Professor Andrew Dowling, thank you for joining us at Altamar. We're looking forward to the publication of your new book, The Rise of Catalan Independence, Spain's Territorial Crisis. Congratulations on that, too. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So, Peter, we've covered some of the causes for movements of secession. We've covered some possible outcomes, although that's also harder to predict. But there's some lingering thoughts that I think we should discuss about the real causes the fuel that multiplies these movements today. And obviously there's, there's an obvious reason, which is the digital age and how it's so much easier now to recruit people for any type of, uh, of public event, including a vote, how easy it is to organize masses through social media, especially younger generations, and how um, it becomes a lot less tricky to disseminate images like we saw in the, in the issues in the events in, in Catalonia, and also how it becomes hard, easier, I'm sorry, to exaggerate, exaggerate the impact of a specific image and to even, you know, spread fake news and lie. And then I have also some lingering suspicions about what makes Scottish separatists who were present as monitors of the election, Edward Snowden and Julian Assange, have such vested interests in this vote. What is this type of global network of cheerleaders that's taken over uh, what is essentially a very regional movement? Oh God, I'm delighted that after all this time disagreeing with you, we're finally gonna at least at the end of the show- That's a surprise. Sort of like depart as friends. I completely agree with you. This is, this is um, these absolutely incredible stories in the newspaper like we were discussing before the show of the California separatist movement. Now, I always thought that the California separatist movement was all about sort of a more leftist, liberal, and progressive policy on lots of issues. But instead, what we find is that somewhere in some town in Siberia <laughs> is this guy who originally is from Buffalo, New York, who's leading a separatist movement in, in California. Siberia? Give me a break. I mean, it just seems so overtly obvious that there is a real thought that the West can be weakened by these tribalist forces that are taking over. I don't want to go too far into the dark side, but I do wonder if these uh, groups, the Catalanes, the Kurds, um, the Californians, don't realize that they're maybe turning into pawns for some sort of a global conspiracy to weaken the West or to weaken democracy. And okay, well, now we, whether agree, now now we disagree again. Well, because they stand to gain, obviously, from all the exposure and all the, the replication of the images and of their cause. But then aren't they pawns, really? Because they are being at least partly manipulated, if that's the case. I, I think, um, you know, I, I know somebody 
who has been of enormous help to my family, somebody who is a Catalan doctor, who had a big impact in when my daughter was very sick. And, you know, I met him 20 years ago when my kid was a baby and she she, um, got sick in Barcelona and he was enormously helpful, somebody who my family knew. And and he was not an independence, but he, over 20 years, has become a rabidly pro-independence. I don't think he's a pawn. I think he just feels... This is a country, this is a land, not a country. This is a land which has a separate language, a separate culture, and that separation and that in that sense of pride has always been rejected by everybody else in Spain. And so I, I certainly don't think he'd see himself as a pawn. I'd see him, he'd see himself as somebody who has really le- legitimate aspirations for increasing independence, and those aspirations have gotten more stringent as the Spanish government has become more full of obstacles. But I think that this leads us to what I think should be our closing thought and closing discussion because, and we should talk about it just a bit, which is, is self-determination based on culture and language and ethnicity uh, and geography, is that a good enough reason to separate? What happened to the sort of sense of a multicultural state that we certainly here in America stand for and in and, and lots of places in Latin America and in India. I mean, what would happen if everybody who wants a separate ethnicity, a separate geography, a separate uh, religion would start saying in India, oh, we want to separate? I mean, you'd get, you'd get, I don't know how many new states. And, and in Quebec, which we didn't mention, another separatist movement that seems to have been quelled or at least calmed over that. I, I just think, is this universal right to self-determination of ever smaller groups of people, is this something that is the main problem in our world today? Or is it something that really somehow has gotten propelled itself to the top of the newspapers but really doesn't deserve to be the main problem? I think that multiculturalism and the fact of being a a tapestry of different cultures and languages is all well and good when there's enough money going around. It's like immigration. Nobody minds the immigrants if there's enough jobs to go around. So I do think that uh, this has the the main trigger for separatist movements has been economic anxiety. Out of all the ones that we talked about, I do believe that is the reason why these movements are now gaining ground and these movements are now becoming uh, legitimate fears and concerns if Countries that, you know, in, in other cases have welcomed immigrants and have welcomed uh, the diversity of their cultures and languages. All right, Muni, we're running out of time. So prediction. Is Catalonia going to be independent in five years? No. Yes. <laughs> That's it for Altamar. And please don't forget to go to iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast distributed and leave us a review. We want to hear your comments. Thank you. Join us the next time. <laughs>